0: I invite you to join me in John 18, if you are not there already. John 18. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we have just confessed in song, now we confess in prayer. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Heavenly Father, we long for that day when we will join the saints in heaven, when our faith will be sight, and together we will proclaim boldly, triumphantly, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And yet, till that day, even now, just as triumphantly, we still proclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we come to this passage that we would see our Savior, Jesus Christ. That way we would see the depth of our depravity and the glory of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me boldness, Give me authority to proclaim the word of God this morning with clarity, that you may be lifted up. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to this passage this morning, it's kind of a shift in the book of John. The last several weeks, we've been in John 13. Through 17, we've been at the farewell discourse of Jesus as it's his final opportunity, as he is teaching his disciples, as he is comforting them, as he is encouraging them. We've been with them in the upper room. We've moved with them through the streets of Jerusalem. Even as we come to this passage this morning, we move out through the gate, over the brook, as verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The last several weeks we've been in the upper room, we've been on the streets of Jerusalem, now we're moving out into the garden of Gethsemane. His teaching is done. The last several weeks we've been in John 17, as Jesus has prayed, from, moved from, from pleading with his disciples to pleading for his disciples his high priestly prayer and now we come to his betrayal and his denial and his trial as we come to this transition in the books we move to this this point where the cross is now looming large leon morris in his commentary gives a good Uh, kind of overview to prepare our minds as we walk into this very heavy chapter. He says this, as in the other Gospels, it is the events surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection that form the climax of the whole book. John has his own way of handling these events, a way which stresses the divine overruling. Thus, John's account of the arrest stresses Jesus' complete mastery of the situation. And there are touches which indicate plainly that the outcome was completely in God's control. So here, supremely, we see the purpose of God worked out. And here, supremely, is the glory of Jesus displayed. You may say that's an odd thing to... To say, as we come to a chapter where Jesus is betrayed and denied by those who are closest to him, and yet we'll see all throughout this chapter and all throughout the following chapters, that in every instance, God is in complete control. Jesus knows. So as we come to this chapter, we'll see a false disciple, foolish leaders... And a fickle disciple. The first thing we see in the first 13 verses is a false disciple. False. Verse 1 tells us where we are. We have a change of scene. We've moved out over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. As we come to verse 2, we're reintroduced to Judas. And Judas, who betrayed him, There again, we have John's little tag-on to Judas' name that we've seen several times in the last chapters. This is the first time that we've heard from Judas since John 13.30. At that point, as Jesus sends Judas out from his presence to go and betray him. What you do, go and do quickly. We noted back in John 13 startling reality that Jesus knew all along who would betray him and yet he still washes his feet and yet he still cares for him Jesus knows not only that but look as it goes on Judas who betrayed him also knew the place Jesus doesn't run for cover knowing who would betray him, knowing where it would happen, and knowing when it would happen. Jesus doesn't run and hide. He goes to that place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Again, here, even in these first two verses, we see the reality that Jesus does not go to the cross reluctantly. He goes purposefully, and he goes victoriously, He knows what God is doing. He knows God's purpose and his plan. And he submits to it. He knows who will betray him. He knows where he will betray him. And Jesus goes there. Verse 3, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, lanterns, torches, and weapons. As Jesus has been teaching in John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, as he's been praying in John 17, Judas has been conspiring with the chief priests. He's been organizing this detachment of troops. They've been gathering their lanterns and their torches and their weapons and now they come ready for a fight. They come to a dark garden with swords ready, with lights ready. They're expecting a fight. They're expecting Jesus and the disciples to, to scatter. And yet notice verse 4. As this detachment of troops with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons and their purposes approach, Jesus, knowing all things that would come upon him, he knew And he goes forward and he says to them, Whom are you seeking? He knows and yet he stays. Not only does he stay, he approaches them. In fact, we go on to see not only does Jesus know, Jesus has power. Who are you seeking? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice how Jesus responds, I am he. I am he. That might sound like a completely normal response in a situation such as we have here. But John goes on to repeat that same thing in verse 6. Now when he had said to them, I am he. His repetition and description here draws our attention to it. This is not a normal response. This is the response of the Son of God. It is a claim of deity. I am In fact, notice the response, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. This is no normal response. This is the powerful response of the Son of God. That's a common reaction to divine revelation that we see all throughout the Bible. In the presence of divinity, man falls down. We cannot stand And so what we see here in these first few verses is that Jesus knows, and yet he stays. Jesus has power, and yet he submits. With his very words, he knocks them to the ground. Their lanterns and their torches and their weapons are powerless against Jesus, and yet he stays and he submits. goes on in verse 7 then he asked them again whom are you seeking and they said Jesus of Nazareth Jesus answered I have told you that I am he therefore if you seek me let these go their way What Jesus is doing here is he is clearly establishing that they are seeking him by their own mouth they have just confessed we are seeking Jesus and Jesus alone they didn't say Jesus and his band of followers even here in this moment, Jesus ensures his disciples' safety. You say you're looking for me. I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let them go their way. You've said it twice from your own mouth. You're seeking me. Here I am. That's what we see in verse 9. Why did Jesus do this? That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. That goes back to Jesus' statement in his prayer in John 17, 12. Jesus cares for his disciples, not just spiritually, but even physically. He is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd cares for his sheep. Again, that is remarkable that in this moment, as Jesus is approaching the cross... As one of his very disciples stands on the other side, having betrayed him and led the soldiers to him, even in that moment, Jesus' mind is on protecting his disciples. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. Just like we haven't heard from Judas, Judas, since John 13.30 so we haven't heard from Peter since John 13.38 at that moment you may remember that's when Jesus rebukes Peter foretells of his denial and then Peter is quiet all throughout John 14 and 15 and 16 and here in John 18.10 he shows up again and again this is the Peter we expect is it not? he's bold He's boisterous. He draws his sword. He's ready to fight. Calvin says this. It is exceedingly thoughtless in Peter to attempt to prove his faith by the sword while he could not do so by his tongue. In just a few moments, he will deny Christ. When he's called to make confession, he denies his master, and now, without his master's authority, he raises a tumult. Here we find the same Peter that we saw back in chapter 13, verse 38. He has not learned his lesson. He is still taking things into his own hands, rather than simply listening and submitting to Jesus. Jesus has control of this situation. He has complete control. He has shown his power. He has approached them. He knows what they are doing. And yet here we find Peter, once again, taking things into his own hands. And yet at the same time, how quickly would we condemn Peter here? Would we laugh at his foolishness? How have you not learned your lesson and yet we are no different? How many times do we take things into our own hands? How many times does God say, trust me? And we, like Abraham and David and Peter, and many who have gone before us, take things into our own hands. We think that we know better. brothers and sisters, God is in complete control at all times. Even when it seems like things are going completely off the rails. Even in the garden, with soldiers with swords and torches and lanterns ready to arrest the Messiah, the Son of God, even then he's in control. In fact, look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Jesus here, once again, reasserts that he is fully submitted to the Father's plan. This is the purpose for which I have been sent Jesus here is once again embracing the cross. Shall I not drink the cup for which my Father has given me? The cup is an Old Testament well-established picture of suffering, of judgment, of the wrath of God. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter, it is better for you that I go than that I stay. You need me to go. This is the purpose for which I have been sent. He has come to drink the cup of God's wrath. And that is good news for you and for me. You see, this wrath is the righteous wrath of a holy and a just God against sin. This wrath is the wrath that you and that I deserve to face. This is the cup that I deserve to drink. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a sinner, and I am a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on, later on in Romans, to say, for the wages of sin is death. What I deserve for my sin against a holy and a just God is to drink the wrath of that God. I deserve death, because I have sinned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus drank that cup for us. And that's what he's saying to Peter here. Peter, put your sword away. God is in complete control. I am in complete control. Trust me. I must do this. This is the purpose for which I have been sent. And I am not going reluctantly. I am going triumphantly to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath for you. Verse 12, In the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, where he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas was high priest that year. The first thing we see in these first 13 verses is a false disciple. The next thing we see in, in these last several verses, verses 14 through 27, it's kind of hard to break into points because the story is intertwining here. It jumps between Peter, and it jumps between the trial. But here in verses 14 to 24, the, the main point of this is these foolish leaders in fact, verse 14 starts by reminding us of who this Caiaphas is, if you have forget, forgotten. This is the same Caiaphas who, back in John 11:50, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Do you remember that passage? How ironic that statement is? In fact, verse 14 here serves both as a reminder of the rich irony of Caiaphas' statement, because that is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's going to die for the people. But it also here in verse 14 serves as insight into his mindset. It sets up the next several verses because Caiaphas' mind here is very clearly already made up about what needs to happen before the trial begins. This trial that's about to come, it's a sham of a trial because before it even begins, Caiaphas has already made up his mind that this man needs to die for the people. As you come to verse 15, it jumps from from the trial going on inside as Jesus is standing before Caiaphas to give us a clue as to what's going on outside. And we see this, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. This disciple is not identified. It seems most likely to be John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. And went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood at the door outside. And the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, who kept the door, and brought Peter in. As this arrest has happened, as Jesus has been brought back, the disciples have scattered, and yet here we find Peter, and most likely John, still following doing what they can to be close to the situation. And, and really, it makes sense knowing Peter's personality that he would want to follow Jesus and find out what is going on. From everything we know about Peter, he seems like one of those people who wants to be there. He wants to know what's going on. And yet, even his boldness in following and drawing his sword in the garden and now following Jesus though everyone else has scattered, it quickly fades In verse 17, then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Notice the question implies a negative response. You're not one of his disciples, are you? No, I'm not. That's what's expected. That's what she expects, but that's not what we expect. If you approach this passage for the first time, you're you're, you're expecting this bold disciple... This disciple who all throughout John has stood up and said what came to his mind. This disciple who seems to be a leader, the one out front, a very strong personality who drew his sword in the garden. You expect him to say, yes, I'm one of his disciples. instead he says, I am not. And thus, the disciple who boldly proclaimed in verse 13, 30, chapter 13, verse 37, that he would follow Jesus even to death, denies him to a servant girl. I am not. She come to verse 18 and it jumps back inside what's going on in the trial? Or I'm sorry, Uh, Verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made the fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warned themselves, and Peter stood with them and warned himself. Peter has gotten into the courtyard now. Verse 19 jumps back inside, and the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I also taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing Now that line might catch you off guard, in secret I have said nothing. I mean, verses chapter 13 through 17 has been Jesus, with just his disciples, teaching. Clearly he has said some things in secret to his disciples. Leon Morris once more points out here, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He does not mean that he has nothing to say that he has had nothing to say to his followers when they were apart from the crowds. What he means is that he did not have two kinds of teaching. A harmless one for the crowds and a more radical message for the secret revolutionaries. What he said to his disciples in private merely unfolded the implications of his words to men at large. The essence of his teaching is public property. What he's saying here is that my message has been the same both in private and in public. I don't preach one message in public and a different one in private. I'm not gathering a secret army. My message is clear. I teach the truth and only the truth. He goes on in verse 21. Why do you ask me, ask those who have heard me what I said to them? Indeed, they know what I said. Again, it might seem to us here like Jesus is avoiding their questions. But he's not avoiding anything, and he's not denying anything. He's using Jewish law. You see, Jewish law provides strict protections for those who are accused, much like our own system. These high priests who, in their hypocritical arrogance, claim to love the law, completely ignore it and throw it away for their purposes in this illegal trial... It was Jesus' accuser's responsibility to establish his guilt, not Jesus' responsibility to establish his innocence or incriminate himself. The order of a Jewish trial is that those who are bringing an accusation must establish their accusation before it can go forward. The high priest here had no right to interrogate Jesus in this manner. And that's all Jesus is doing here. He is reminding him, you are wrong in doing this. You know the law. You claim to love the law. And yet you've thrown it aside in this instance to get what you want. I don't have to answer you because you have not established my guilt. That is your responsibility. My teaching, it's out there in the open. If it's truly, bo- if it's truly a problem, there are lots of people who have heard it. Go and bring witnesses. Verse 22, notice the response. When he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? What irony. That this officer strikes the Son of God for disrespecting a priest who is out of line. in the same moment as they are illegally trying and planning to crucify the Son of God. He rebukes the Son of God for disrespecting the high priest. If only that man had any idea who stood right in front of him. If only he had any idea of who that man to whom he is speaking and striking was. Here we see Jesus' response once again. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Again, we see Jesus' same response. It is your responsibility to provide proof. Bear witness to it. If I had done something wrong. In fact, all throughout the book of John, there's a stress on witness. You may have picked up on this as we've been working our way through the book of John. There's a stress on witness. In chapter 5, 31 to 40, there are several witnesses that Jesus puts forth to his ministry. You may remember that passage as the, the religious leaders charge him, saying, you're, you're speaking on your own authority. Therefore, you have no authority. And Jesus says, I am not speaking on my own authority. There are several witnesses that testify to me. He puts forth John the Baptist, his works, the Father, and the Scripture. All four of these testify to who I am. Later on in chapter 8, verses 14 to 18, he once again says, the Father testifies to who I am and what what, what I am doing. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has brought forth several witnesses that point to who he is. In fact, that's John's whole purpose of writing this book. To bring forth these witnesses and this evidence and to say, this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And here we see at his trial, that though they demand witnesses of Jesus to prove who he is, they bring no witnesses against him. There was no evidence. And there's a complete lack of interest in the truth. Their minds are made up. Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Finally, as we come to verse 25, we find a fickle disciple. We've seen a false disciple in Judas, foolish leaders and Annas and Caiaphas. Now we come back to Peter, a fickle disciple. Peter who's already denied Christ once at this point before a servant girl. So come to verse 25, we jump back outside to the courtyard where Peter is and says, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Again, notice there is an expected negative answer that they expect, not that we expect. Again, if you're reading this for the first time, maybe you're coming to this expecting, okay, maybe the first time it was just, he wanted to get in, he wanted to remove all kind of things, maybe it's just a quick lie, he got in. Now that he's in, now he'll boldly proclaim who he is. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denies it and said, I am not. His first denial goes back to verse 17. Now in verse 25, as we jump back outside, we see that while Jesus' is inside stands boldly in the face of injustice and he does not deny anything, Peter stands outside around a fire and denies everything. How fickle he is. In fact, he doesn't start th- stop there. Verse 26, And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him who cut off Peter's ear, who cut, who, whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied again. And immediately a rooster crowed in fulfillment of Jesus' words in 1338. John doesn't tell us how Peter responded or how he felt. But you can imagine how small he felt at this moment. And yet praise the Lord that this is not the last that we hear of Peter but that the same man who so often spoke and acted without thinking who goes so far here as to deny Christ three times goes on by the grace of God to play a key role in the founding of Christ's church and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Not because of who he is But because in this chapter, we see a false disciple, foolish leaders, a fickle disciple, and a faithful God. In fact, as we come to the conclusion, perhaps that is what stands out most about this well-known passage. Despite the falsehoods and the foolishness, and the fickleness. We still find a faithful Savior. We still find a God who's in complete control. We still find a Savior who triumphantly goes to the cross. And that's good news for us. Because is that not your testimony and my testimony? How wicked is my heart. How foolish are my actions so often. How filled with pride I am. How fickle in my faith. And yet Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for me. He's a faithful God despite my unfaithfulness. Despite my sin. So we cry out, even as we sang earlier, Hallelujah, what a Savior! Yeah. Passage like this opens our eyes to the depths of our sin, the depth of our depravity. And yet, even as it shines a light on our sin, it all the more illumines the amazing grace and the love of God. And So how do you respond to something like this? First, believe. That's the whole reason that John has written this book, that you might see that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might believe. And so the first thing I would say this morning is if you are here and maybe you've never heard this before or maybe you've heard it before and you've never acted. Maybe this morning as we've been looking at this you've come to the realization through the word of God that you are a sinner and you see the penalty of your sin and yet even in this passage as you see the depth of the depravity of man you see the grace of God that is greater still. I would tell you that there is salvation. And I would plead with you even this morning, even in just a moment as we close with a song, Jesus paid it all. If you were in here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, I would invite you, come to the front and grab me and I will take you to my office and I will sit down and I will open the Bible and I will point you to Christ and I will open any, answer any questions that you have. Or maybe you'd be more comfortable grabbing someone next to you, someone that you trust, someone that you know. Talk to someone. Someone who will open a Bible and point you to Christ. Secondly, those of us who are in Christ, you can't come away from a passage like this and not see how foolish and how fickle and how wicked we are. Maybe even your mind has been drawn back to things that you have done this very week. Maybe even this morning. And I would call you this morning as we sing a song of response. Jesus paid it all. Maybe to bow at your seat on your knees or come to the front or go and find a room and go to God. Seek forgiveness. Confess your sins and find the grace, amazing grace of God. And finally, respond in worship. Praise your great God for what he has done for you in Christ. He's worthy of our worship.